Hi, I would like to invite you to attend our second annual Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Tyler. We are going to host the Congress this year on June 9th and 10th at Bishop Gorman High School in Tyler. Our theme for this year is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. We will have keynotes in English by Dr. John Bergsma from Franciscan University of Steubenville and in Spanish by Bishop Daniel Flores from the Diocese of Brownsville. To register or to find more information, you can go to stphilipinstitute.org. Thanks. In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, I'm joined by Deanna Johnston, our Director of Family Life, and we're going to have a very intense discussion about the Second Vatican Council's teaching on marriage and family life. We're going to zoom in on just five paragraphs of this document and really open up what's the practical import of the Council's teaching for families today. One note, in this episode, by the nature of its content, we're having a little bit more mature conversations than we might otherwise, so exercise a little bit of caution depending on who's listening, who's within earshot. I hope you enjoy this conversation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And I am joined in this episode by my colleague, special guest, Miss Deanna Johnston, who is our Director of Family Life. Um, Deanna, I'm really excited to have you for this conversation. Do you want to introduce yourself just a little bit for the uh, for the audience? Sure. Yeah, as Luke said, I'm the Director of Family Life. I've been in the Institute for about five and a half years. And my primary job, well, first and foremost, is as a wife and mother. Um, we have baby number five due in hopefully eight weeks. And um, in the Institute, my primary role is to focus on helping couples um, become saints. Uh, as we know, in the Institute, we, we really focus on building disciples in East Texas, and uh, Bishop really wanted us to have a special focus on marriage and family. So a lot of what I do is marriage formation for engaged couples, also moving into ongoing formation for married couples because there is always something new to learn, mm -hmm. and then developing resources for natural family planning, fertility awareness, education, and whatever else the bishop throws at me. So, When I was coming to work uh, at the Institute, Deanna, um, and you know this, like I read the Constitution on teaching that the bishop issued in 2017. Deanna was one of the first people hired, the first person hired to work at the Institute. Um, the founding document is the Constitution on teaching, and I, I read that uh, and I, I, I still have the copy, like my first physical copy of it with like all my notes and scribbles yeah. and everything. And I realize like every time I go back to look at it, that the part of the constitution I'm responsible for, uh, the like sort of general faith formation sacrament stuff is a lot shorter <laughs> and there's a lot less kind of like 
notes where I was like, wow, oh, I could do this. That'll be so awesome. And I wrote that like all over like your section of the Constitution. <laughs> right, section so three. So I'm, yeah. uh, I'm not the director of uh, Marriage and Family Life, um, but I could play one on TV if someone had, you know, really desperate need. Um, so it's like my, uh, one of my hobbies is to be interested in like the work that you do. So, um, so the reason that uh, Deanna is here to join us on this episode is um, we're going to be uh, talking about the Second Vatican Council's teaching on marriage and family life that's found in the document Gaudium et Spes. So what I've been doing on the St. Philip Institute podcast for a while now is going through the four major documents of the Second Vatican Council, and typically what I'm trying to do is cover like 50 pages of a document or 30 pages of a document or something, you know, in a half hour. And it's just, just like drive-by trying to condense and summarize. This episode is going to be like the opposite of that. So we're going to be zooming in um, and spending a sort of a significant amount of time just talking about what amounts to, let me see, in this printing, starts on paragraph 47 and it goes to paragraph 52 and it's only like 12 pages. Um, so we're going to have a much more thorough conversation um, about that section of the document. So what, what Deanna and I are going to do is basically, uh, uh, first I'll offer sort of a summary of kind of what this section of Gaudi Mispez is, is talking about, and then, um, you know, together we'll have a conversation about some of the particular things, not just that the text actually brings out, but also sort of like the relevance, like why, why does any of this stuff matter um, theologically, but also, and this is where Deanna is super, super great about keeping me focused, is how does it apply to the actual lives of married people mm. or people who are preparing for marriage? Yeah. So um, in the Second Vatican Council, the document Gaudium et Spes is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Um, part one talks about a lot of doctrinal principles about the foundation of the, the human dignity of the, of the, the dignity of the human person and how that sort of grounds everything. Uh, part two, where, where we're going to be looking at today, talks about problems of special urgency. And the first problem that the council fathers say that they want to discuss is marriage and family life. And the reason that they address marriage and family life, and they tell us in their own words, is because marriage, and this is a quote from Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 51, marriage is the foundation of society. So if we want to serve the dignity of the human person, if we want to serve the common good, we have to ensure a healthy culture surrounding marriage and family life because those are where these foundational ideas are learned and really passed on. Um, so marriage is the foundation of, the, of society, and they say there are a lot of challenges specifically with marriage. Now, this is 1965, which needed to be addressed, and they list... Um, a bunch of the problems. And it's really fascinating that some of these problems, maybe all of them, are still around. Mm -hmm. One of them I think we don't talk about as much anymore because this was the 60s. But this is the list they give us. So these issues are threatening marriage in 1965. And the church says, we got we to focus on them because marriage is the foundation of society. And right now we have problems with divorce, adultery, polygamy, free love, as well as excessive selfishness, the worship of pleasure, and illicit practices against human mm. generation, which is 
a sort of very PG way of talking about, you know, abortion and, and some sort of contraceptive practices. Um, maybe we don't talk very much about free love today because that's a very, like, 60s kind of term. But it's but I don't think it's as the case that, like, that's completely absent right. from our society. We just we don't call it that right. anymore, right? Right. Um, so you see that list from 1965, and do you think, oh, well, we solved those problems? <laughs> or do you think they've all basically gotten worse? They've all gotten worse, and the list has expanded because, as you were saying, that it's reminding me of how we're even just having an issue with understanding identity Um, and what does it mean to be male and female? What does it mean to be human? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. that we can't even understand that and just how far we've kind of fallen even since the, the sixties. Yeah. And there's a, there's a little bit of a sense when you read, especially Gaudi Mitzpez, it's not, it's not the case in every document, but Gaudi Mitzpez has a little bit more confidence in the fact that, like, we're going to turn this around. This is the modern world, and we're going to face the modern world. Mm -hmm. And if we can effectively evangelize, we can fix these problems. They don't Mm -hmm. say it exactly, but you have this, like, this sort of spirit in the text that, like, divorce is a big problem, but... If we just rally, you know, we we can solve we can it. Do it. Maybe you know, and maybe that's like me at the beginning of every year. Like I'm really gonna lose the weight this year, and you know, it doesn't always happen. All right, can you remind us what Gaudium et Spes means? Because my Latin is not fantastic, but there's something about joy and hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it, the the yes, it it comes from the opening lines of the document. All Vatican documents are this way. They get an English title or or a, you know. Um, Italian title, whatever language you speak, that is derived from the Latin in the first sentence. So the first sentence of the document says, the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. So it's joy and hope that is gaudium et spes. Spes Mm -hmm. is hope, gaudium is joy. So um, the overall context of this all is we we want to participate in the joys and hopes of mankind. And mm-hmm. so marriage is one of the, the, the key concerns. So in order to respond to these challenges, the council devotes, um, what is it, five or six paragraphs um, in part two of Gaudium et Spes. And I, I'll just kind of summarize like a bullet point style. What is what is the, the key contribution of this document in each of the main paragraphs? So paragraph 48 give sort of an overview of the theological foundations and the meaning of marriage. Like what is marriage? What is its purpose? Paragraph 49 is a discussion of the concept of conjugal love, which, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about today. Uh, the third major topic under the, the heading of marriage is the role of children. That's paragraph 50. talks about the role of children in marriage and family life. Um, the next is paragraph 51, which is a commentary on modern challenges with respect to family size. Um, we don't have time to go into like this huge, great story, but we have two episodes on the St. Philip Institute podcast where I talk about the document Humanae Vitae. In paragraph 51, there's a footnote that says the church is kind of evaluating modern methods of contraception, and we're not going to take a stance on it one way or the other right now, but we're working on it. And that led to Humanae Vitae. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear like a two-hour story about that, um, look at the uh, description of this podcast, and we'll have those two episodes linked. And then the next sort of major feature is a reflection on what the council hoped in 1965 as the future of marriage, um, which I don't know that we'll get to, but it's it's always interesting to me as I've been working through the, the text of the Vatican Second Vatican Council, um, what 
kind of desires the church saw for going forward and like the ways that sometimes we've met those challenges, sometimes we haven't. Um, but that you, you see sort of the, the, there's enduring parts of these documents mm-hmm. and then there's parts of them that are like, well, this is what we hope is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, well, we can still try. It's not like, like, wow, <laughs> right. dang it. But so this is kind of an overview. Um, Deanna, what's, what's your sort of general perspective here on the, the like the importance of the second Vatican council's teaching on marriage and family life? Like th- how does that mm. impact the work that you're doing? Yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting that the the document speaks of joy and hope because there is so much darkness. Like we said at the very mm. beginning, like these are the challenges that married couples are facing. And it's only in reality, I think we would all say it's all kind of gotten worse. Um, but I think the role of documents like this is pointing to the the fact that the church has and values um, the treasure that is the sacrament of marriage and that it's not just a box that we check, but she understands that marriage is the foundation for society. And sometimes I think we can hear terms like that and they just kind of go over our heads like, oh yeah, marriage is the foundation. of But no, a healthy marriage can impact, and we talk about this a lot in marriage formation, mm-hmm. that the couples we're investing in and we're forming, that those are making up a parish community and that parish community <laughs> makes up a larger part of society. And like by building those communities, like that is transformative. Like those things have consequences. And we may not see the fruits of that for decades, mm-hmm. or we may not see how that's impacting our children or the people that they will become. But the role of the family is, it, it can't be um, um, underestimated. And so looking at, you know, the, the church's documents and especially the Vatican II documents, um, how she speaks of marriage and family life, it one, it should give us joy and hope <laughs> that the church is there to support us, but also that the reality of the sacrament of marriage, that the sacramentality of marriage is not just this like pie in the sky idea, but it is actually something that can transform the world. And that's how we make saints and not just in the procreative sense, but how we, how we convert souls and um, that the family plays a key role in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it makes sense that a lot of the, challenges and the darkness and the obstacles that we're facing right now are rooted in a misunderstanding of what family marriage and family life is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good because one of the things that's interesting is, I mean, we know statistically like, you know, more people or a greater percentage of Catholics at least were getting married, you know, in 1965 than that are getting married Mm -hmm. now. Right. And so by like the most basic kind of logic, you could say, well, there were more people receiving the grace of the sacrament of marriage then than there are now. And uh, why didn't all of those marriages just like blossom with like this fruit of sanctity? (laughs) Why didn't that why didn't that help to solve some of the problems? Part of the reason I I think is what did the formation for those marriages look like? Mm -hmm. What did it entail? What was the level of understanding that people had as they were like, you know, entering into these marriages? And that's not to discount the reality of their marriage or the reality of the grace that like is available to them. Um, But you need to know what you're preparing for. You need to, you know, if you're not adequately prepared for it, we can only receive the amount of grace that we're actually disposed toward exactly. receiving, right? Exactly. Um, you know, I, I make this joke all the time. Like my one of my brothers is a, is a ballet dancer, and he's sometimes, you know, given me advice on exercise, and it's like, 
so far beyond where I'm capable <laughs> of entering into that it doesn't doesn't do me any good because mm-hmm. I, I can't do I can't even start. Um, so the the marriage formation piece is actually I mean when you you have all, all there this is a big item now like you know the the marriage catechumenate like the churches has had a lot of perspective changes in what it looks like to prepare someone for marriage exactly since the second vatican council exactly. right i mean john paul ii even the idea of like a marriage formation program at all was a pretty revolutionary idea when john paul ii mm-hmm. was, was a young priest um it's one of his like unique contributions in poland was to say like well if you're going to get married like I mean, we're not just going to fill out a form and pick a date. Uh, we need to spend some time, you know, working with you. And and, right. and that's slowly become a pretty exactly. universal practice. Uh, and now, you know, the Vatican's called for a year of uh, preparation for or, or what? what yeah. Is there a time limit on it or just it's a marriage really, kind of human? Right. A marriage kind of, and, it, and it's a different models. And I, I think we are going to have some podcast episodes that really b- break that open. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, like when we're in, and in our diocese, we are really intentional about calling this marriage formation instead of marriage preparation, because oh, preparation yeah. implies, you know, just getting couples to the altar and formation is more like we want to get you to the altar and beyond. We want to walk with you through every season um, of married life because, oh man, <laughs> married life is, I've been married for almost 10 years. You've been married for, oh, I've got to do math. <laughs> Sorry. 2009. <laughs> so 13, 13 full years, right? Yeah. It'll be 14. In yeah. December. So yeah. your, and your relationship has probably changed a lot since 2009. So the way that we're, that we're looking at this or the church universal is, is looking at this marriage catechumenate instead of folks thinking of this as the church, um, exp- making the mm. requirement longer, like, Oh man, you're going to make couples wait a year right. to a year and a half. Right. Thinking of it more as we have to do a better job because of all these challenges mm-hmm. and the reality of married life. We have to do a better job of walking with you before marriage, and we have to continue walking with you after marriage. This yeah. whole idea of accompaniment, and I think that is something that the church is getting much better at understanding and articulating, is we have to accompany people in their walk of holiness and in their their journey towards sainthood. Um, so instead of us throwing people in the deep end and saying like, oh, we got you to the altar, good luck, <laughs> helping right. to, to step into the reality of, okay, you got married, now you have two kids or three kids or more. Um, and light, just the reality of life. And I think that's what I'm, I'm really appreciating about when you, when you actually look at the marriage catechumenate document, how it speaks of like the intimacy between marriage and baptism and living out this call and the role mm. of the church in um, in fostering that that call to holiness, but that we have to step into the messiness of people's lives and understanding that because life is messy, because marriage is hard, and it's okay to say that, mm-hmm. that the church needs to be there to continue to walk through the practical um, realities of people's lives and through mentorship and things like that. So that's what I'm, I'm really excited about with the catechumenate model. We've yeah. kind of been following that in our diocese in a, in a certain way, but, but yeah, I think it, it ties back to how the church is articulating it in documents like this, yeah. um, of like, if this is what marriage is, this is why we have to protect it. Yeah. The church historically, um, if you look back to the late 1800s up to now, has been much more interested in talking about marriage much more frequently, 
uh, much more, you know, at length. And I think it's a really good thing for the church. I know I was telling you this story recently, but it's I think it's good for all of our thousands of listeners to hear. Um, my daughter was was uh, for some reason looking looking at lists of saints or try, I don't remember what what she was doing. She was in the middle of doing something, and she comes to me and she goes, "Daddy, so there's like." There's not there's not any like saints who are like they're just like they're a saint because like they were married, mm. right? There's like saints that were martyrs or like they were a bishop or a pope or whatever, but there's not like married saints, I guess. Mm. And I was like, no, no, there are married <laughs> saints. And she goes, okay, well, what are some married saints? I'm like, um, Saint Therese of Lisieux's parents, they're married, they're both saints. And others, others. Um, so I, I think that like you can you can even see in our canonizations, the church is a little slow, mm-hmm. but getting there, uh-huh. catching up on the idea that like we've got to raise up. I can't just arbitrarily raise up a couple and say they were saints, but we've got to find those couples who can give us an image of exactly. what's one way that this looks like. Exactly. Right. And there's, if you do, if you just look at saints and you say, well, I don't care if they're married or not, just let me, let me look at a hundred saints. You will see 100 radically different ways yep. of embracing God's yep. will in your life and living holiness. And marriage is not going to be different than that. Right. And so I, I was talking with my daughter and I said, you know, I think if the church had been paying attention and looking for married saints in the five hundreds, we'd have, more of them, mm-hmm. and you'd be able you'd be able to see this that that marriage does looks it looks a lot different depending on the the, the individuals mm-hmm. the circumstances. But what's at the root of all of them is this like authentic desire to grow in holiness. So um, one of the things that I think is interesting is if you were to ask e- even a minimally practicing Catholic, it doesn't have to be someone who's like I'm at mass every week, but someone who's maybe once a month at least, right? They're they're not they're not just coming to mass once or twice a year. They're, they're kind of like they're trying. Mm-hmm. If you just gave them 30 seconds or a minute and a half, you ask them, what is the proper order for your relationships? Like, what are the most important relationships, starting with number one and working your way down? What What's the number one relationship in your life? Don't spit the answer out. Think about it for a second. They might, they might be able to realize the number one relationship ought to be with God. It's not, but I know the answer mm-hmm. ought to be God, right? They would mm-hmm. probably say... The most important relationship I have is my relationship with God. And most people being honest with themselves probably be like, I'm not living my life like that, but I know that's how it ought to be. Mm-hmm. But if you ask those same people, and even people who are going to Mass every week, you know, so I mean, start limiting our audience to Catholics, but ask the question, what's the point of marriage? Mm. What's the ultimate point of marriage? I don't, I don't know... If you get a very consistent sort of answer mm-hmm. to like, uh, it's about uh, this, I think you'd you'd get a, a lot a lot of more like, uh, it's got to be about something. What's it about though? I don't know. Is it about um, having a lot of kids? Um, educating. It's about educating my kids, making sure my kids pray. Uh, it's about um, I don't know what it's about, right? Mm-hmm. So. I think that this is this is really interesting, and we, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, just in preparing for the podcast. What is the, in fact, the point of marriage? Mm-hmm. Answering that question sometimes can be like a super loaded conversation, depending on who you're talking to and what they're expecting right. as the answer to that. So right. let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what in fact is marriage about, 
And how does this document, Gaudi Mitzpez, help us to see this question maybe in a new way? You want to yeah. kind of take a stab at that? Yeah, actually, I kind of want to throw it back to you because you know exactly where. But we, we often hear marriage is about the procreation and education of the children and the sanctity of the spouses. And um, and you can probably point to exactly where this is in in this particular document. But the the challenge that can can arise with that is that we put it in exactly that order that yeah. we say it is the procreation and education of the children yes. and then the sanctity of the spouses. And we can sometimes forget <laughs> that marriage is a sacrament and it's mm. about the sanctity of the individuals. If that's lost, then the primary I guess the primary purpose of the sacrament mm-hmm. is lost there. Um, but yeah, can I throw it back to you? Sure, yeah. Well, so this idea of marriage being about, it's about three things. Like there's a very sort of reflex answer among people who've, who've spent a little time thinking, okay, yeah, I want to read about marriage and learn about it. Like what does the church teach? You can get to a real quick like, oh, here's the answer. Mm-hmm. Marriage is about Pro les fides sacramentum, right? It's about procreation or having offspring. It's about the fidelity of the spouses to be faithful to one another. And sacramentum, the sacrament is in third place. Um, that ought to like sound a little weird that we would put sacrament as number mm-hmm. three and say like the ranking of, but that's a very common way of getting at it. And that, that goes all the way back to Augustine in in you know his one of his uh, uh, document De Bono Conjugale on the Good of Marriage. And that has a lot of weight, but that's not like the only way that people have explained marriage like throughout the throughout the church. Um, what the Second Vatican Council does in a very very helpful way in Gaudium et Spes is say that yes, children are indeed it says the supreme gift of marriage, not necessarily the purpose. The fidelity of the spouses obviously is important, but the sacrament really is the thing that we need to kind of put our emphasis on. Um, there's a, there's an excellent article from uh, the journal Antiphon, a journal for, for liturgical renewal uh, by Robert Festigi, who's a, I don't know if he still is, but he was a professor at Sacred Heart Seminary. I think he's still there. Um, that's just really, really good about discussing the ends of marriage, like the idea that like, it, well, what's marriage about? It's about these three things, procreation and education of children, fidelity of the spouses and sacraments. And in that order, like there's a there's a tendency for us to kind of want to see them that way. Um, and what he really shows is that the Second Vatican Council does not, it doesn't use that language, but it's not because it's trying to subvert mm-hmm. that like prior to Vatican II, everything that was ever written about marriage made it univocally clear marriage, first of all, is about procreation, education of children. Then it's about fidelity. I mean, right? You can stop right there and see it's stupid to list them in that kind of order. They're like, well, you got to have children, and then number two is then you should be faithful, faithful to each other. Right. Like, <laughs> obviously, there's a, there's a handiness of having a list of three things. Yeah. But when we put too much emphasis on this is the order, you know, it, it gets a little tricky. Another one of the things that he, that he mentions is that there's a distinction between the goals of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the ends of marriage. Mm-hmm. Some of these things are, are complicated. Aquinas talks about natural ends of marriage, which he says procreation and fidelity fall in there, and then the supernatural dimension Mm -hmm. of marriage, which he says is the sacrament, and that the good of the spouses ultimately is concerned not just with educating and procreating, procreating and educating, but the ultimate good of spouses is the sacrament, where we receive grace. Mm. We receive the life of the Trinity through the mm. grace of the sacrament of matrimony. Mm-hmm. 
There is a grace in having children, but it's not it's not a sacramental grace where you get the divine life because you had kids, right? right? Married people who don't have children, where do they fit into this? Right. If number one is about procreation and education of children, right? So what are what are some of the ways that you can see some maybe some dangers mm-hmm. of of kind of overemphasizing, you know, one one way of seeing it or or the advantages of like really reframing the way the Vatican II kind of takes us and says, "Let's let's look at the good of the spouses first. Kind of what are your some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, so what it was reminding me of is the like one the hierarchy of relationships. We talk about this in in our marriage formation program um when it comes to family of origin and then also looking at the nature and sacramentality of marriage. That the hierarchy of relationships like you were saying like God should be first and then my spouse and then my children and then everybody else. And it's really easy to get that out of order, especially when children enter the relationship, because what can happen is children become the primary thing. My Mm. spouse can become second and then God is somewhere in there. But when children are the primary focus of the relationship, there are consequences to that. Um, One of the things we were talking about before we recorded is that there is this rise in something called gray divorce, where we're seeing couples who have been married for 30 years, 25, 30 years, they've raised their children. The children are now out of the house, they're empty nesters. And there's there's no foundation to their relationship because their entire marriage has been focused primarily on raising children as the first and foremost thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to talk to couples when we when we bring this up at our engaged couple retreats. The number of couples who have said like, but wait, like aren't children supposed to be the most important thing in our family life? I was like, no, because the children are yeah. the fruit of your relationship. And so what we're seeing happen with this rising gray divorce is that couples are like there's like we said there's no foundation and when we have the hierarchy out of order it leads to things like this where a couple's like well we don't do we do we actually understand what it means to love each other do we actually understand Mm -hmm. what it means to be a married couple because now the thing that the people that were our primary focus are now gone Um, so that's one of the consequences that i see the other thing is i hear this emphasis on Procreation of children is the most important. Children are the supreme good of marriage. And children are a beautiful gift. Yeah. And, and, to, for, and to be clear, just I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. just interrupt just really briefly. The, you know, the, the text of the, the document here does say that children are the supreme gift of marriage. Mm-hmm. Right. But that is different from saying that they're the supreme reason mm, uh, exactly. for marriage. Like they, they, you have, in other words, you don't have a marriage If you don't have children. And I think that's like, that's sort of a blind spot when you put all your emphasis on procreation is first. What does that mean for someone who doesn't have children? Either like they've they've only been married a little while, but they don't have children. We're like, well, are are they married then? Right. You know, I mean, yeah, obviously we'd say they are. Like no no one's really going to get confused about whether they're married. But if the purpose of it all is about procreation... What about all those cases, and there's all kinds of different ways that this can happen, mm-hmm. that people are married and they don't have children? Right. What do we say about their marriages? And then what would you say to them personally? And what are they supposed to do? Exactly. You know, how do we support them? And I guess the, the thing I've – Deanna's so great at this when, when when she talks about marriage. She never misses these gaps. <laughs> I, I'll, like, think about it and, like, just, like, look at, like, the typical – 
you know, okay, you, you got married, then you had children, and, like, everything goes, like, you know, quote-unquote normally. Deanna always sees the, like, well, what about these other cases, these cases? I'm like, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, it's not only the case that if we put procreation as number one and we just put all our eggs in that basket, and say, this is what marriage is about. It's not only the case that you're kind of overemphasizing something to the and and Definitely. maybe hurting yeah. uh, a group of people who don't have children, mm-hmm. but you're at the same time underserving even those people who do have children and or that everything goes normally. If they don't have that ultimate grounding of what what this whole thing is about, right? Then right. you're in that problem that you just described of great divorce. Exactly. And then we also see things like you know couples are stepping into marriage that don't realize that they're going to have to struggle with infertility, that they're going to have to embrace that cross at some point or secondary fertility. And when we have this emphasis on um, the, and maybe it's not as common as I think it is, but sometimes we can encounter this attitude within the church that the holiness of our family is indicative of the size of our minivan, right? How many car seats do I have in my car? Are we a Honda Odyssey family or do we have the Nissan Envy? Like, yeah. are we, are we, have I reached a certain level of holiness because I have a certain number of children or, and, and I want to be really clear that, that, to have a lot of children is very generous. I'm I'm working on number five right now, um, and but I also recognize that the church never gives us a list and says like, okay, well, if you really want to be a holy family, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna reach at least the three kid mark, and then you know we'll upgrade you to the next level of holiness. There are holy families that are very large, eight, ten, twelve, thirteen kids beautiful. There mm-hmm. are holy families that have one child. There are holy couples that have not been able to have any children. And so right. the thing that I see, and I've seen people get hurt by this. I've seen people yeah. walk out of talks that are being yeah. given where we are talking so much about the procreation and the supreme good or the supreme gift of marriage being children that we can forget. Like infertility is actually on the rise. And, and so the church is going to have to get oh, even right. better at um, about talking about this and accompanying people through that pain. Um, so if the church herself has this has this attitude of you know it, your marriage is contingent upon how many children you have, and that's going to tell us you know how holy you are. There are there are struggling marriages that have lots of kids, you know. So it, you can't mm-hmm. we can't look at that as a label to say you know we we just have to be. We have to be, I want to be open to as many children as God wants me to have, but that doesn't mean that the church is going to give me that number, if that makes right? sense. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure most of us know that. Like, the, Most of us know that the church is not going to, like, there's not a secret paragraph in the catechism or in Casti Canubi. Is there a decoder ring for reading <laughs> right. Hermione Vitae? Right, exactly. You shine it the right way and it, like, reveals, like, right. oh, look at the ink underneath. There, there, That's how many kids we're all supposed to have. I'm like, going to steal the Declaration of Independence <laughs> and it is going to, and in there, on the back page, if you illuminate, it will tell you how many children you're supposed to have to be holy. That's exactly. Nicolas Cage's next movie, I think. <laughs> 
Uh, it's already in development. Exactly. And I'm, I'm not getting any money. So. No, it's all good. Or like some Da Vinci Code thing. Like, And sometimes I feel like people approach the church's teachings in this way. Like, you know, you ha- mm. you have to reach this level of, of sanctity, like this number of car seats in your car to be a holy couple. And I just yeah. like I look at that and. And what the church is so good at and what I really liked in in that article that you mentioned is that it points out so well how the church's teachings didn't change with Vatican yeah. II, but to see this development of doctrine, to see how um, how we have a better understanding of some of these things. That's, that's really good, actually, to, to think of it as sort of, and look, this, this is the document, the church in the, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And in the 20th century, more than ever before, the church had heard from the witness of married couples, the witness of families. There had been a real groundswell Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, married people forming organizations. There's um, saints who are, you know, married. You've got St. Gianna Mola. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's authors who are married writing on marriage from a theological perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand is an important author um, in this conversation. And uh, all of this is having an impact on the church being able to better recognize, like in the current context of where we're at, what what is the, the, the accompaniment that people need to think about marriage. And they realize that putting the good of marriage, the good of the spouses, more to the forefront of the conversation, that's really, really critical uh, for all kinds of reasons. And you, mm-hmm. you've hit on, on a number of them. We've talked about a number, but there, there are a lot more, yeah. right? I mean, you could yeah. really just say any, you, you know, every marriage, every family is going to have its unique reasons why keeping the good of the spouses at the center of marriage really helps to make sense of everything else. Right. When the good of the spouses is truly being sought, then you have a good way of discerning, should we have another child? Maybe should, should we not have another child? And the, the children themselves are a part, a function of the good of the spouses. Like mm-hmm. they contribute to that, right? Having children contributes to the good of the spouses, but the good of the spouses also helps to, you know, kind of evaluate what are we doing with our children in terms of education, right. in terms of formation and, and, and everything else. I want to I point out also something that, again, this is this article by Robert Festigi, which is really awesome. Um, this is a quote from Cassie Canubi, which could be one of the sources that people will point to and say, oh, here's the three ends of marriage. It's right here. Uh, but it, it overlooks this line. So this is from St. Pius XI. This is 1930, December 31st, 1930, written in response to the Anglican Church changing its teaching on contraception. That's, you want to see more about that, check out those two episodes linked in the description because it's a whole two-hour story. Um, if you think this episode is fun, wait till you <laughs> let me just tell a story for two hours. Okay. This is the quote from Cassie Canubi. This mutual interior formation of husband and wife, this persevering endeavor to bring each other to the state of perfection, may in a true sense be called, as the Roman Catechism calls it, the primary cause and reason of matrimony. So long as marriage is is considered not in its stricter sense as the institution destined for the procreation and the education of children, but in the wider sense as a complete and intimate life partnership and association. So notice this. This is Pius XI, it's Casti Canubi, and he's saying 
we've really got to remember that the primary cause and reason of matrimony should properly be said, as the Catechism of the Council of Trent notes, the mutual interior formation of husband Mm. and wife. It's formation of husband and wife and the endeavor to bring each other, so the husband bringing the wife, the wife bringing the husband, Mm -hmm. to the state of perfection, which is to sanctity, that's the primary purpose of marriage when you look at it more broadly. Mm -hmm. Now, does it inextricably involve a connection to procreation? Yes, but even the Roman Catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, says that mutual help of spouses um, is the primary reason for marriage. Um, so that's that's really important to, to, to bring out. Again, this Festigi article, uh, so great at helping us see that there's actually like a, a lot of plurality of ways of explaining marriage. And you can see this in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If you mm-hmm. pull up any individual sacrament, I know you go to the beginning of each sacrament, there's a discussion of what is this sacrament called. And I think it's hilarious that, like, if you look at the Catechism's teaching on the Eucharist, it's like, what is this called? Is it called the breaking of the bread? Is it called Passover? Is it called the Eucharist? Is it called Thanksgiving? Is it called memorial? There's all of these words to use it. What about baptism? Is it called baptism? Is it called chrismation? Or not chrismation, but, uh, like, illumination? Uh, There's... We don't even know what word to use to call a sacrament. It's very, uh, very, very, I think much more complicated to say, distinctly say what exactly is the purpose of of this sacrament in such a way that there's no other way you could say it. Mm. There's no other way you could just Mm -hmm. explain it. We can't even say, I mean, baptism is about the forgiveness of sins, right? Nobody can deny that. But isn't baptism also about becoming a son of God, becoming a daughter of God, becoming a member of the church? Isn't baptism also the gateway to the sacraments? Isn't baptism also about preparing us for a life of discipleship? Mm-hmm. It's about all of those things, and you can't you can't really say, like, you have to say it in this sort of cert- certain order. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same thing, I think, applies about marriage in that when we, when we want to say what it's about, we've at least got to be willing to say it cannot just be that it's procreation, education of children that must be the way that you that you start mm-hmm. that's part of the conversation but in a special way with marriage procreation and education of children only makes sense within the context of the good of the spouses mm-hmm. if like mm-hmm. you're saying we we understand marriage to be about how many kids can we have mm-hmm. and that's the only thing we're thinking about that could be really dangerous for the children themselves exactly and for the spouses exactly exactly and I, as you were saying that I'm thinking of the vows themselves and, and how we talk Ooh. about that, especially in marriage formation. Let's see if I don't mess this up. Um, and I actually like it more in Spanish because it's yo te recibo a ti, I receive you. But yeah. in English, it's I, Deanna, take you, Michael, my husband, um, to be my spouse. Um, I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Um, I promise to love and honor you all the days of my life till death do us part. Um, or some version of that. There's a couple of different, I think there's three different versions that you can use um, in the right, or the order of celebrating holy matrimony. And I think about those words, I receive you, I take you to be my spouse. And we talk to couples so often about how powerful those words are. Like once those words are spoken and the, the, the conjugal act takes place, that covenant is formed. And 
every time the couple engages in the marital embrace, it's a renewal of those vows. I give everything to you till death do us part. And understanding like even just this concept of a gift of self mm-hmm. within the sacrament of marriage and the sanctity of the spouses, like we can't we can't undermine that. <laughs> that yeah. that isn't a footnote from the church. Those are the those are the words that we're saying on our wedding day, and we renew those vows every time we engage in the marital embrace. And when we only think of, or we start to think of like the supreme gift, and a gift is something that is received, it is not taken. The supreme Mm. gift of marriage being children. um, If we only look at the, okay, our primary goal as a married couple is to have babies. Okay, like, and we make some really cute babies, um, but <laughs> Deanna's babies are very cute. I can testify, and so are yours. I can testify, like, and have seen that the words she speaks are true. They're ridiculously cute, but if my only job is to just keep making cute babies, to the detriment of the sanctity of my spouse, like my job is to help my husband Michael to get to heaven. Yeah, that is our most important job. If I I'm having all these cute kids, but I'm not helping my husband to grow in holiness, or he's not helping me to grow in holiness, then we are not living out the sacrament of marriage and its fullness. And it can also lead to, and this might be a tangent, but it could also lead to a distorted understanding of the sexual relationship. Yeah, no, no, that, that's good. That's not, that's, maybe it's a tangent. No, it's not a tangent, because it's in here. It's in... Uh, it's 49? Actually, this is a really good segue push into this discussion about the notion of conjugal mm-hmm. love. So you mentioned the conjugal act, the marital embrace. Um, in paragraph 49 of Gaudium et Spes, uh, if you're playing the at-home game, you want to turn to paragraph 49, <laughs> uh, there's this really beautiful description of the notion of conjugal love. Uh, it, it's not terribly short, um, but I, I want to read uh, some of it. And, and the, the idea is this, what Deanna is saying that if your marriage if we were if we were to understand marriage to be simply about procreation and i know it seems like we're like really pushing a lot on that it's because it, i think it's one of the most common shorthand ways of answering the question of what marriage is about it fits for a lot of people especially at the beginning of their marriage if they just keep that in mind that's all they need it motivates them they're good but what's the long-term consequence of that for when you've had your children? Mm-hmm. Or, well, do we have another one? Well, that's the purpose of marriage is to have children. And even if you don't have that many, when you get to the end and the children are gone, well, then what? Then what's the whole thing, you know, been about? This notion of conjugal love is actually much broader than merely just, like, allowing for sexual activity, you know, within marriage. So there's another sort of common, you know, stereotypical view of, of thinking about sexuality from a Christian or a Catholic perspective that, like, it's bad until you get married and then, you know, you can do it. Um, and that's really the church is saying something much more um, profound. So this is from paragraph 49. It says, The biblical word of God several times urges the betrothed and the married to nourish and develop their wedlock by pure conjugal love and undivided affection. Many men of our own age also highly regard true love between husband and wife as it manifests itself in a variety of ways, depending on the worthy customs of various peoples and times. This love, and it means conjugal love here, is an eminently human one since it is directed from 
one person to another through an affection of the will. It involves the good of the whole person and therefore can enrich the expressions of the body and mind with a unique dignity, ennobling these expressions as special ingredients and signs of friendship and signs of the friendship distinctive of marriage. This love, conjugal love, God has judged worthy of special gifts, healing, perfecting, and exalting gifts of grace, and exalting gifts of grace and of charity. Such love, the conjugal love that is a, at the will of the person from one person to the other person, so it's not an instrumentality. It's not making a transaction out of the relationship or, or out of any specific act of the relationship, whether that's the you know, sexual act or, or other acts. Such love, merging the human with the divine, le- leads the spouses to a free and mutual gift of themselves, a gift prov- pr- providing itself by gentle affection and by deed, Such love pervades the whole of their lives. Indeed, by its busy generosity, it grows better and grows greater. Therefore, it far excels mere erotic inclination, which, selfishly pursued, soon enough fades wretchedly away. And that's really only half of the paragraph, or or maybe a third of the the, the whole thing. So much is packed Mm. in there. This notion that the sexual act of a man and woman, duly married, you know, we're mm-hmm. talking, we're not talking like just people having sex. We're like these are, they came to the church, they had a wedding, and then they have the sexual act. That intimate act of, of love, right, has to be grounded in a much broader concept of conjugal love that pervades their entire relationship and goes far beyond the fact that they're just now allowed to have sexual intercourse, right? So conjugal love, when you see that anything about conjugal in a church document, it's not just talking about the fact that, like, these two people are now permitted to have sexual intercourse, Mm -hmm. but rather that they're supposed to have an, an entirely transforming um, love that makes their entire life an authentic gift of themselves to the service of their spouse for their ultimate goal of sanctification. Mm-hmm. That kind of rich, profound teaching gets you a grounding upon which you can really build your understanding of the purpose of marriage, even in those circumstances where you're infertile and you're not having any children, or you're dealing with how many more children do we have? If you don't have that concept of conjugal love as the foundation, you don't even know how to ask that question and you don't know how to find the answer. Exactly. If you're just putting the focus on procreation, there's no good way of discerning when do we procreate. The conjugal love has to be there first. Mm. It has to endure through the challenging times of having lots Mm -hmm. of children and get you past that time when you can distract yourself by saying, well, our whole life is about serving our children. Right. It never really can be that right. way, but even if you foolishly let yourself kind of get stuck that way, mm-hmm. there's there's got to be something you know guiding you out of that. And I love this line that, therefore it, which is conjugal love, far exceeds mere erotic inclination, which selfishly pursued soon enough fades wretchedly away. That line about it fading wretchedly away, really important for people who are preparing for marriage. 
especially if one of the things that they're, you know, really putting a lot of focus on is like, well, now I'll have a legitimate way of expressing myself sexually with my spouse. That's not, I'm not that old. Okay. But I've, I understand even at 38, you know, you do not have the same kind of appetites and you're not always going to have the same kind of energy. If that's like the big thing that you're really excited about, that's right. fine to be excited about right. it. But you can't right. imagine that that's what your whole married life is going to look about. Exactly. It's going to look like rather. Exactly. Um, and to be married when you're 60 or 70. It's going to look different. A very different kind of situation. <laughs> right. So if it's if it's been either either about procreation or about like a legitimate arena for sexual expression, mm-hmm. both of those are good. Don't misunderstand us. Mm-hmm. Those are really important. Mm-hmm. But they're not the ground for a healthy marriage. Exactly. Exactly. And there's so many problems that can sprout from a, f- a misunderstanding of what conjugal love is. Because like you were saying and, and how we, we were talking about but even before we recorded, that this idea of conjugal love being the same as um, or equal to sexual love, like mm-hmm. the if if the if the primary mode of affection is only the sexual relationship or or the marital embrace is the only th- way that we can express love as a spouse mm. that's not healthy because yeah. there are going to be times where that isn't possible and it's kind of funny that that some couples like they don't understand that and many of them are, are young engaged couples yeah and yeah. this is where i also see this criticism of a marriage formation, like expanding a marriage formation. When our mm. diocese went from six months to a nine to 12 month formation, yeah. a common pushback was, you know, well, we're just making chastity harder for these couples to live out because we're making the time longer. And what I hear when people say that is, okay, so we're concerned that um, they're gonna have to wait longer to engage in the marital embrace. Okay. Um, is this not an opportunity to help them understand what marital chastity looks like, what abstinence may look like in their marriage too? Because that's gonna come up at some point. After you have a baby, guess what? Guess what mm-hmm. you're not doing for at least six weeks? You know, so like having a healthy understanding of what um, conjugal love is, yeah. what the marital embrace is, and that it is so much more than just having children, that it is this gift of self. And we get into like the theology of the body and mm-hmm. an understanding of like this free, total, faithful, and fruitful love, because you can be engaging in intercourse, but it not be true, authentic, conjugal love. You yeah. can be having a bunch of children and, and this is where people throw in terms like marital debt, and that's a whole other podcast episode probably is clarifying <laughs> what that means and what it doesn't mean. Yeah. But that's where I hear people throwing out terms like that. It's like, well, this is the, like if procreation is the ultimate good of marriage, then you know marital debt, like you can never say no, or there's mm. never a reason to not engage in yep. the marital embrace. And it's like, no, because this is so much more. This is this is about the good of the couple. It's about the holiness of this marriage. And if the pursuit of holiness is the primary target, if, it, if that's the thing um, that we have our eyes on as a couple, then all of these other 
issues that come up, like you were saying, like those fall into alignment much better. It's so much easier right. to discern family size. It's so much easier to just to discern family life things that come up. Are we going to homeschool? Are we going to send our kids to Catholic yeah. school? Are we going to send them to public school? Um, how are we going to deal with this or that situation? Um, it's so much easier to deal with the realities of family life when things are properly aligned, when God is the primary focus of our yeah. relationship and the holiness of our relationship. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really important. And I, I know, um, I mean, you've heard me say this a lot of times at Q&A at some of the engagement retreats, but when you get into a question, for instance, about family size, right? Mm -hmm. If you have not properly ordered your understanding of what marriage is about to place God at the center of it, mm answering that question about whether or not it's a good time to have another child is, I mean, you're just totally guessing, right? It's like me going in my backyard with some seeds and water. I'm like, I'm going to plant a garden because I know what I need is seeds and sunlight and water. I don't know anything about my soil. I don't know what kind of crop, what temperatures, you know, there's all these other things that you need to know. Um, if you're, so if you don't have that relationship with Christ, that sanctification, that call to perfection as the center of how you understand mm. your marriage, mm -hmm. dealing with all of the other difficulties that you're going to encounter are going are going to be so much more difficult. And I and I know I can you know I can speak personally like when 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 Elena and I are really taking our prayer life seriously, when we're each individually and and as a couple saying like I'm not missing I'm not missing my prayer I'm sticking to it we're doing this. When we get thrown problems of the, you usually have nothing to do with marriage it's just like you know life oh <laughs> yeah. we have this terrible thing going on another thing and it, it's so much easier to mm -hmm. just be it's all right we're just gonna we're fine mm -hmm. but if you don't have that and then just life comes your way it's really difficult to make any sense of what to do exactly. how to respond exactly. um man Deanna, I think that we could probably talk for another 20 or 30 minutes, but uh, this has been really helpful, I think, for us to see, like, the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, right? It's not just, like, some obscure theological stuff that you're like, I don't, I don't know what value it has. It actually, and you see this in the Catechism, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, its section on marriage, and you look at the footnotes— a lot of the footnotes are coming from Gaudium et Spes. So it's a really foundational way. It shapes the way that the church is thinking about marriage in this, um, you know, in this new new world that we're in, where it's, as you've said, we've even moved farther from some of the problems and we have newer ones. Mm -hmm. So we need to remember some of these fundamental things. Um, is there anything you want to sort of say, you know, kind of wrap things up, sort of closing <laughs> remark? Yeah. No, well, thank you for the opportunity to, to break this open. And I, I think what this conversation has, has really opened for me is that the church, oh, the church is so wise and the church loves marriage and family. And even beyond this document, because I know we, we just talked about a very narrow mm -hmm. piece of one right. particular document, yeah, yeah, that's right. but I'm so grateful for the wisdom of the church and how she gives us the, she gives us boundaries and um, but she never underestimates um, or devalues the importance of marriage and family life. 
Um, and like going from this document to going to things like Humanae Vitae or even the writings of, of John Paul II when it comes to marriage and family life and the role of the family in the modern world and even um, looking at documents like Amoris Laetitiae and what Pope Francis has said about mm-hmm. marriage and family life that the church is there and she understands why we ha- this this is the final battle right this is yeah. this is the thing that that we're all going to encounter um and yeah i think i just have a, a deep sense of gratitude for the church and yeah looking forward to other conversations maybe about the the marriage catechumenate and okay. things like that let me just uh close us out with reading the very last uh couple sentences from the section on marriage and family life which is describing sort of like a summary statement of what is this all about this has to do with the future of marriage so listen to the way that the council describes an authentically formed you know family as being actually a key to witness and evangelization because that's the big work we're trying to do here at the institute is to evangelize and catechize so finally let the spouses the spouses themselves made to the image of the living god and enjoying the authentic dignity of persons be joined to one another in equal affection harmony of mind, and the work of mutual sanctification, which we talked a lot about. Thus, following Christ, who is the principle of life, by the sacrifices and joys of their vocation and through their faithful love, married people can become witnesses of the mystery of love, which the Lord revealed to the world by his dying and his rising up again to life. Can't say it any better. Thanks for joining us, Deanna. I really appreciate this conversation.